to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll read a passage. We'll come back to it later. Again, the goal here is not to exegete this passage in all of its fullness. And I want to make that clear, lest ye be under the impression that this is how we are to use the Scriptures. I'm not meaning to exegete, but we will use this passage later as sort of a proof for what the Confession teaches in chapter or section 8 of chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, I want to read verses 24 and 25. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time. Lord, we do thank you for another opportunity to gather with your people and to learn from your word, about your word. God, I pray that you would make us into a people who will be found diligently seeking you through the study of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to begin tonight by reading just a couple statements of faith regarding the Bible that I found online, just very quickly went to some church websites and pulled off statements of faith. There is such a thing that the terminology has been coined as website orthodoxy, in which someone is actually unorthodox in their beliefs, but they'll say, well, look at our website and see what it says. And you go to their website, well, sure enough, they have a a fairly orthodox statement of faith, and so they act as though they're uh, untouchable. They can't be charged with unbelief or uh, heterodoxy or anything like that. Um, The point here is not that. I just want to read these, and then I'll explain. Here are two complete statements of faith from websites of other churches. And these are obviously not taken from uh, Reformed Confessions. These are probably a rewording or a, a putting in their own words of what they believe about the Scriptures. One of them, quote, We believe in the truth of the Bible and its perfection. We will continually use the Scriptures as our guide in teaching, preaching, and training. End quote. And that's all that is said about the Scriptures. The second one, quote, about the Bible. The Bible is God's Word, written to mankind by God-inspired authors. It is infallible and the guiding light for believers. The Bible has the final answer to life's tough questions. And this website actually gives a scripture reference, which is good, 2 Timothy 3, 14-17. And that's it. And now... What's interesting is usually these types of statements of faith are about as exhaustive with regard to the Trinity as they are with the Scriptures. A couple lines. Now, I don't read these statements of faith, uh, these examples, in order to necessarily mock or point out error. Because I think we would, in as far as what they do state, we would probably agree with these statements to an extent. And I also don't want to point them out as a, as a way of saying that it's always the best thing to multiply words and say a lot about something if you don't need to. Um, but what I do want you to understand is this. As we study through our confession and as we hold to a Reformed confession, we are attempting to fall in a line of godly men, a long line of godly men who have studied deeply and considered very extensively what the Bible says about the Bible. And that's what's important. What has God said about what God has said? If God has said something about what God has said, then we should affirm everything God has said about what God has said, rather than always attempting to reduce it to the the least common denominator. Uh, The Scriptures themselves teach 
a lot more than a simple affirmation of divine inspiration, which leads, of course, I believe, to the doctrine of the infallibility of the text. Therefore, we have to believe more than just they're inspired or they're infallible. It's not enough to believe that the Bible is true. The TV guide is true, but I'm not going to come up here and open the TV guide and say, well, it says 6.30 on Tuesday night, so on and so forth. It's not even enough to believe that the Bible is God's Word. We must also believe that it is the only certain and sufficient rule of saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. In other words, it's, it's all good and fine to believe that the Bible is God's Word, but if you believe the Bible is God's Word in addition to the Koran or the Book of Mormon, those are also God's Word. We see that's not enough. There must be more. And so we, we do believe in more. And that's why we're here on the eighth paragraph in the first chapter that deals with the Scriptures. And also, here's a good question to consider. What good is any of this, any belief in the Scriptures, if we still believe in some sort of a superior clergy class who has to read and interpret the Scriptures for us, the common folks? That's what last week's uh, paragraph was on. Last week we covered the doctrine of the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture. Not only do we believe it's God's Word, but we believe that it is clear enough for common people to read. The doctrine of perspicuity, and here I'm, I'm, I just copied and pasted from my notes from last week, teaches that the Bible is so clear that all kinds of people can come to the Scriptures making use of the ordinary means of reading and studying all of its various parts, and all kinds of people can attain to a sufficient understanding of the teaching concerning <laughs> salvation, faith, and life. We believe that about the Scriptures. And all of that is, of course, predicated upon what we learned weeks before. Namely, the Holy Spirit must give illumination to God's people to help them understand the Scriptures. So we're sort of building, uh, week by week, we're building and working off of each uh, different section and paragraph. And you'll remember at the very beginning I said this, this confession is meant to be read back and forth. Or as Renahan says, side to side. Read the front, read the back, read it all through the middle. Because that's how it's written. It assumes a lot at the beginning and explains a lot at the end. Now tonight we come to a topic that gives us tremendous aid in the area of clarity or perspicuity. And that is the doctrine or what we believe about the translation of the Holy, <clears throat> the Holy Scripture. And we will see tonight not only the doctrine of perspicuity, but also the doctrine of authority and inspiration are necessary for understanding what we believe about the translation of the Scriptures. All of this comes together. It is not merely that we picked a favorite or that we believe that, there, that it doesn't matter what kind of translation you use. All of that comes together to form what we believe about the translation of the Scriptures. And I would say from the, from the very beginning, hopefully we agree that every belief should lead to an action. It leads to something. As we talk about the translation of the Scriptures, this is not merely something to hold in our minds. If we believe in the translation of the Scriptures, or we could say scriptural and theological um, writings about the Scriptures, and we believe certain things about their translation, then that will lead to at least our prayerful consideration to that area. For example, it's not good that we say, well, I think it's great that um, Chapel Library prints Spanish materials. That should be something we should pray for, pray about. When we have opportunities to participate in that type of effort, and however we can, we should. As some of you guys here have given away Spanish literature to Spanish-speaking people. All of that is built on the foundation, built on what we believe about the translation of not only the Scriptures, but just theological writings in general. Now, perhaps you've probably encountered folks, and maybe a few of you have ran into folks, 
who fall into the camp, what we would call King James only. Anybody ever met anyone like that? And every hand is up because we've, we've met them. Now, according to James White in his book, The King James Only Controversy, there are at least five different kinds of folks who fall into this category of King James Onlyism. Now, this is important for us because while we might disagree with some of them, many of them, we need to understand these categories lest we run into one of them and assume that they're all the same. This is important. I want to just want to list these to help you out here from his, from his book. First, there are those who like the King James best. That's it. They just prefer the King James Version when they read, when they study, perhaps because of its style, perhaps because of its history, perhaps because of the nostalgia that goes along with it. This was the Bible my grandparents read and my parents read. This is the Bible that I learned all of the Scriptures from. When I quote John 3.16, I still say, Whosoever believeth on Him shall be saved. That's just what I know. It's what I prefer. That's one category. The second category are those he calls textual advocates. That means they prefer, and you're going to find most of the people don't even go this far, as far as an education and what goes into a Bible, but there are some who prefer the majority text or the textus receptus to other Greek manuscript traditions. The majority text is a Greek text. The Textus Receptus is a Greek text. And they just say, I like that Greek text and the tradition that brought us that Greek text better than other traditions. And so therefore, whatever comes from that Greek text, maybe it's the King James Version, maybe it's a different version, they prefer that textual tradition. Um, the majority text is a consensus of the majority of Greek manuscripts. And so some would say, look, this is what the majority says. Well, the problem with textual criticism is the majority doesn't always outweigh the oldest. And so the Textus Receptus was the Greek text used to translate the King James Version. And so some people just say, I like that Greek text better. If you can translate that Greek text into another Bible, English Bible, I'm cool with that, but they prefer that one. The third level are those who hold to a received text only, that is, textus receptus only. These folks generally believe that the textus receptus, that Greek tradition that was used to translate the English, the King James Bible, is at least supernaturally preserved by God. And some would go as far as to say that is the inspired Greek text. So they go from, I like it, to, well, I like these couple manuscript traditions, to, I like this manuscript tradition. Then the next one is the inspired King James Version advocates who would say that the King James Version in English is the inspired Word of God and all other English translations should be judged according to it. Now a lot of folks will jump a, a few steps here from step one to step four pretty quickly. Especially when they open up a Bible like the NIV or the ESV or the NASV and they'll lay that beside the King James and they'll say, well, the King James says this and this one takes that out. Well, they're assuming that the King James is the original. You see, we could just as easily say, no, the King James adds that. But they come back to that as their standard because they believe that it is the inspired Word of God. And then the last level that he gives is those who hold to the King James Version as new revelation. They would say that the King James Version, and this is the most extreme view, the King James Version was a direct work or a work of direct revelation from God after the Greek and Hebrew autographs were written and therefore the Greek and the Hebrew should be changed to match the King James Version. Now that's pretty extreme. Hopefully you can see how <clears throat> erroneous that view is. Again, now in our consideration of these things, and as you deal with people, we have to be careful not to cast doubt on God's Word. 
if we walk, if we convince somebody to reject the King James Version or lower their view of that version of the Bible simply because they've rejected the Bible as a whole, we've not, we've not gained any ground. So we have to be careful as we deal with people. And there are those who hold to those first two perspectives who are perhaps untaught on the issue and they're actually, even though they may prefer the King James, they prefer a, a particular uh, text history, they do actually study and learn the Bible that they have. They, they want to learn. They're searching the Scriptures and we don't want to be guilty of casting doubt on the English translation that they use. Others, and those, those last three views are, are a little more extreme, especially the last two, they're in error. They're wrong. Those, those tend to be cultish, ungodly views. And, uh, but we have to be kind with those folks as well as we talk to them and, and remember that they have probably been taught error just like we could very easily be taught error and not to, not to use that to harm them. Now, what do all of these positions have in common? There's one basic truth that is the foundation of every single one of these perspectives, and that's this. English-speaking people need a Bible. That's where we agree with them. They're not reading the Textus Receptus. They're not going to stop there. They want it put into English. And a lot of them, again, they prefer a particular English. But they still agree, English-speaking people need a Bible. And that's, again, where we agree. And paragraph 8 of the Confession explains this position. So let me read paragraph 8 and then we'll unpack it. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by His singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentic. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God, who have a right unto and interest in the Scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation into which they come, that the Word of God, dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship Him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the Scriptures may have hope. This is what we believe about the translation of of the Holy Scriptures. Now this paragraph, as you all know, I'm going to try to break it up into headings. It's a big one. This paragraph begins by listing four fundamental affirmations. Then it gives one logical deduction from these affirmations and then concludes with three objectives. That are, that are that deal with the translation of the Scripture. So that's where we're going. Four affirmations, one deduction, three objectives. So let's look at the four fundamental affirmations. That is four fundamental truths that we affirm, that we believe. Let me read this first section again. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old. The New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations. Being immediately inspired by God and by His singular care and providence kept pure in all ages are therefore authentic. Let me break that down. Here is the affirmation. and there, This could be broken up even more, I understand. And I, I did originally have, I think, seven or eight affirmations. But I'm trying to simplify this. Here's what we have to affirm. The Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, penned by the original authors, are immediately inspired by God, have been kept pure, and are authentic. That's the affirmation. Now, by way of reminder, 
A lot of these things we've already covered in these Scripture references which will be on the screen. We've already read, but they all, again, they all pile on top of each other to give us this affirmation. The first one from Romans 3.2, you'll remember, it is to the Jews, or the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jewish people who spoke the Hebrew language were given the privilege of receiving and preserving the Old Testament Scriptures. That was one of the proofs as to why we do not accept any intertestamental or apocryphal writings is because the Jews never accepted them. Now, some would say, well, the Jews didn't accept Jesus either. Well, that's on them, but it was given to them. We have explicit reference here. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. Um, What they did with them... Um, that will that will be upon them, but they did were used to preserve those Old Testament scriptures. In Second Timothy three sixteen, Paul says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And there again, if we wanted to stick to the immediate context, Paul is talking about the Old Testament scriptures. And this testifies to their inspiration. The Hebrew scriptures that Paul used were, he says, breathed out by God. Another one, 2 Peter 1, 19-21. We spent more time here. Peter writes, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, that is, no New Testament prophecy of Old Testament Scripture, comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is, when the New Testament apostles and prophets would open up to Ezra or Psalms and they would teach from it in the church, what they gave was the Word of God. It did not come from them. It was not their own interpretation. As our men are studying, we see these New Te- or Old Testament references used in the New Testament over and over. That wasn't just them saying, well, I think it kind of means this. Or to me, it sounds like it means this. No, Peter says what they wrote was God's Word. The New Testament apostolic exegesis and application is inspired by God. And we can back that up again with 1 Thessalonians 2.13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, that's Paul's preaching and his, his apostolic band as they came into Thessalonica and they preached. He says, when you heard it preached from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So Paul was under the impression that his preaching, his teaching, ultimately his writing was God's word. That's what an apostle is. When an apostle spoke, he spoke the word of God. It could be written down. We had this conversation today. If there are any more apostles, we open up our Bibles and we keep writing what they they say. That's an apostle. So Paul was under the impression that his preaching was the very word of God. And he says, I thank God that you, you Thessalonians got that concept. And you didn't say, well, that's what Paul says. But no, they took it as the word of God. So the apostles Paul and Peter both affirmed the divine inspiration of the Old and New Testament scriptures. And guess what? They didn't have an English translation. Second thing that we need to remember, this is the text that we read at the beginning. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. God promises the preservation of His Word. Now some would come to this and say, well, see there, the King James Version. No, 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 no. Peter didn't have a King James Version. He didn't have an English Version. Peter didn't have a Latin Vulgate. But God, speaking through the Apostle, says, this, my Word will stand 
forever. Now, why is that? It's because God's word, God's decree is a part of who he is. Remember that, ladies, we just talked about that. His decree is an attribute. It is, it is a part of him. That's why it stands apart as a second person and came incarnate as the Lord Jesus Christ. His word is as eternal as he is. It must stand. Amen. So, the originals, Hebrew and Greek, were immediately inspired. God spoke through those men as they wrote, and therefore they are authentic. They are genuine. They are real. They are the bona fide Word of God. They come straight from God's anthropomorphic mouth as we read the Scriptures. And that will be preserved. Does that make sense? Now, think about this. Why must we affirm this? That the Hebrew, originally written Hebrew, and the original autographs in Greek must be preserved. Why is that important? Why can't we say, well, I mean, we don't have those anymore. We don't have the originals, but we can get close and, you know, we're trying the best we can, but, you know, really there are so many, we're so far removed and there are so many errors, it's really hard for us to really get back to what the original autographs said. Why must we say, that's not good enough? Why do we have to affirm this? What's all built around the authority of the Scriptures. Remember, authority, a rule, assumes an ought. An ought assumes authority. And the authority of the Scripture comes from God. God is the author of the Scriptures through the means of inspired men. Only that which God inspired has God's authority. So if we don't have God's Word, we don't have God's authority. It doesn't matter what sounds best, what works best, what has worked the longest, what is the oldest, or what is the newest. The only point that bears any weight in this debate is, what did God say? That's all that matters. Now, are there a lot of questions and a lot of work still to be done in this area? Yes, there is a lot. And we do put a lot of... Uh, Stock in our textual critics and those who labor in the ancient manuscripts. But we, I do believe that we can trust our English Bibles in as much as we do have a, a good translation. Again, we don't believe every translation is the same and we don't even believe that every translation is good. But we can put faith in our English Bibles. God inspired men who wrote originally in Hebrew and in Greek there is some in Aramaic. I, I believe that is probably assumed in these, these two languages. The original autographs are what are inerrant, infallible, sufficient, certain, and authoritative. That's what we believe. The originals. Now somebody's going to say, well, we don't have the originals. And you're going to say, you're right, we don't. But we have scientists who labor in what we do have to figure out what the originals say. The Bible... Let me show you this. This is interesting too. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But, in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Now, the Bible is clear, I believe, that there is no longer to be expected any kind of dreams, visions, theophanies, special revelations from God to men. God used to speak that way, but... Now he's spoken to us in a different way. God's special revelation ended with the death of Christ's last apostle. This means the Bible itself prohibits any kind of later inspiration of translators or translations. So if you believe that the King James English is inspired or the King James Version is new revelation... The Bible that you open up and read in King James English tells you that can't be. Because He's spoken in His Word and through His Son. So that's the first affirmation. The Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, penned by the original authors, are immediately inspired by God, have been kept pure, and are authentic. And a lot of the weight and faith that we put in textual critics is, is a faith in God. That, that we Because... 
We believe God will preserve His Word. It has preserved His Word. So we're not just trusting, well, I hope these men are really good scientists. And I hope they really know what they're doing. We believe God works through these men. That's why it's important to know who they are. What do they believe about the Scriptures? Who are they working with as they translate the Scriptures? Because I do believe God is going to work through Christian men who believe the Bible, members of His body, the church, to preserve His Word. That's how it has always been. So that's the first affirmation. And that is the longest affirmation. Second affirmation. I'll read from the confession and then we'll again put it in affirmative language. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. So here's the affirmation. In all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to the original autographs, the original languages. Again, why does this have to be affirmed? All matters, or all that matters, in any controversy in the church with regard to doctrine or practice is what has God said on the subject? And that's where we stop. We must say with Isaiah in Isaiah 8.20, to the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. If there are debates that arise, that's what we say, to the word. What does it say? Well, in English it says this. Well, that's, that's debatable. Well, then let's go to the originals. What do the originals say? Well, Westcott and Hort said this, and these guys said this. Well, we'll just keep digging. If we have to go that deep, we can go that deep. But that's where we go, to the originals. So we affirm that. Flowing from the first affirmation, in every controversy where it is necessary. Now, and a lot of times, it's not necessary to find out you know, the original contextual use of that word and that phraseology within a sentence like that. A lot of times, we don't have to go into all that. But where it is necessary... We return to the original languages and the original manuscript evidence. Why? Because that's what God said, and that's all that matters. Third affirmation. This is probably the shortest of the affirmations. We read in the confession, But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God. Now let's turn that into an affirmation. The Hebrew and Greek used in the original texts of Scripture, are not known to all the people of God. Can we affirm that? I think we can all agree. I don't speak ancient Hebrew. I don't speak Koine Greek. Most people don't. We have to agree on that. Fourth affirmation. Speaking of all the people of God, it says, Who have a right unto and interest in the Scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. What's the affirmation? All of the people of God have a right and interest in the Scriptures and are commanded by God to read and search them. We affirm that. Now, it helps here to remember the context in which our confession was written Remember, there were bishops, there were priests, there were popes, there were cardinals. There was a clergy class who were educated in Hebrew and in Greek and in Latin into which the Scriptures had been translated. And Rome would say, no, no, the common people don't need to learn those languages and they definitely can't have a Bible in English. We know the language of the Bible. We'll read it. We'll tell you what it says. And you probably heard the stories. It was illegal to translate the Scriptures into the common languages. If there was a Bible, it was chained to the pulpit so nobody could take it away. Regular people were not allowed to read the Scriptures. But we believe all of God's people have a right to the Scriptures and an interest in the Scriptures and are commanded by God to read and search them. I want to use some of the, the proofs from the Confession. Acts chapter 15, verses 15 through 17, and John 5, 39. And I'm going to try to figure out what exactly the, the signatories were doing here. It's really not all that clear. In Acts 5, 15, verses 15 through 17, And with this 
The words of the prophet agree just as it is written. After this I will return and will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known, or who makes these things known from of old. They're in the context of the Jerusalem Council. They're trying to debate, can are Gentiles allowed to believe? Is this really happening? What are we supposed to do? And it's brought up. Well, the scriptures say that at some point in time, there will be people outside of the Jewish nation who will seek the Lord. A people from every tribe and people and language and nation are going to come seeking the Lord. And then, John 5.39, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. In other words, it is through searching the Scriptures that someone truly seeks the Lord. Therefore, if you put these two things together, and this is how I'm, I'm using these, it was prophesied of old that people from every language would seek the Lord through the diligent searching of the Scriptures. So there are our four affirmations. I'll put them all together. The Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament penned by the original authors, are immediately inspired by God, have been kept pure, and therefore are authentic. In all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. Everybody who's a Christian doesn't know these languages, and yet all of God's people have a right and interest to the Scriptures and are commanded to search and uh, study them. So what is the one logical deduction that we can take from these four affirmations? It is this. Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come. Vulgar there meaning common. The language of the common people. So here's this deduction. We've got those four affirmations. What must we deduce from that? The Greek and Hebrew Scriptures are to be, that is, ought to be, translated into the common language of every nation. In other words, we believe along with our particular Baptist forefathers that the Scriptures should be translated to the very best of our ability and with the nearest possible accuracy to the original autographs into every language under heaven. That's what we believe. Now those who hold to extreme forms of King James onlyism can't affirm this. Because Elizabethan English doesn't work in Chinese or whatever. It doesn't work. And so they can't say that. As a matter of fact, those extreme views would say the Chinese need to learn English and then learn Old English in order to actually read the Bible. That's Islamic doctrine, not Christian doctrine. Now, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 because there are several proofs given here. And it'll be easy, easy if you can see them all. I'm going to jump down through the chapter. Verses 6, 9, 12, 24, and 28. 1 Corinthians 14. In verse 6, Paul says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues... How will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? In other words, brothers, if I come to you speaking in a language you don't understand, how is it going to be of any benefit unless I bring something else? I've got to do something more than speak in a foreign language. Verse 9. So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible... How will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. Again, this is common sense. Verse 12, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. That is, we studied this with the spiritual gifts. The goal is to edify the body. The goal is to use your gifts to build up the body, not confuse and tear down the body. Verse 24, 
But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. There, the idea is if an outsider comes in and people are opening up the Scriptures and teaching from the Scriptures, an outsider would be convicted and convinced, called to account by the folks in the church. And in verse 28, But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. There again, in the context of tongues, you're speaking in a language nobody understands, and there's nobody there that can say this is what he meant, then it's of no use. So we see that the Apostle Paul even saw the lunacy and unprofitability of attempting to do any kind of teaching in languages that are unknown to the people who are being taught. That's just simple common sense. Um, I could speak in gibberish all day long. It would be of no value. That's what he's saying. It would just be useless noise. We can see how obvious this is. And yet how many controversies have arisen and how many churches have been split or destroyed because they want to hold to a translation doctrine but not to the biblical translation doctrine. They want to have a view. They believe the Bible should be in English. They want to have an English Bible. They just don't have the biblical view of a translation. The Bible nowhere... Hints at an idea of a superior language or people. King James onlyism is as American as apple pie. And any movement that exalts one people or nation over another must be rejected. Our God is a speaking God. And our worship is spoken worship. Even when we're singing, we're singing words we know and understand. Our teaching and our preaching is a spoken act. And so it is central to Christianity that although men have been scattered as a result of sin, the Word of God still goes forth in power in every language. If we can't affirm that, then you know we're, we're sort of stuck in our borders, just kind of running circles around America. We can go over to Europe and places, and a lot of people are learning English. I like sometimes to be facetious when people bring up the use of the King James Version, and I'll just tell them, no, I don't speak that language. Now that is, of course, a little... Far-fetched, but that's not the modern language. Now, do we have to translate every translation of the Bible according to every little twist and turn of, of uh, relevant language or speech? I don't think so. Um, modern ideas like the whatever they are, the street street versions and all this stuff, um, are are a little ridiculous. But we do believe that the Bible should be translated into the common language of every nation. The confession says that every nation unto which they come. Well, if we believe the gospel should be taken to every nation, then we should just say it should be translated into every language under heaven. That means somebody's going to have to go, find the people, figure out what their language is, learn how to speak that language, then learn how to put English into that language, maybe teach them how to read a writing of their language, and then put the Bible in that. That's a hard work. That's a, that's, a, that's a big task. But God is worth it. And then finally, three objectives that pull all of this together. What are the main thrusts behind this endeavor to have the Scriptures translated? To what end do men labor? Somebody gives their life somewhere on the mission field with zero converts. And yet when they die and you're going through this stu- their stuff, you find out that they've got three books of the Bible translated into a language that nobody's ever read before. You say, what, what was the purpose of that? That was a waste. It wasn't a waste. There, was, there is an end to all of this. Number one, and we're still reading the confession, that the Word of God dwelling plentifully in all. This is taken from Colossians 3.16 where Paul writes and actually commands let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. When we hear the word let or use the word let we, we, we're, we're speaking of like an allowance or a permission. That's not what's happening here. This is a command. The Word of God should dwell in you richly through reading, through study, through biblical not New Age, but biblical 
meditation through constant repetition of that. Read, study, meditate, read, study, meditate, read, study, meditate. All of that engulfed in prayer. This is how the Word of God dwells in you or comes to dwell in you richly. This dwelling, settling down and making its home in you, this happens when the very life-giving, world-creating Word of the living God through Christ becomes the overarching and underlying rule of reality, past, present, and future, for your life and your thinking. In other words, as it's been said, if you were cut, you bleed Bibline. The Bible is it. In every way you think, in the way you view the world, you look outside and see someone drive down the road, and the first thing that comes to your mind is something you've learned from the Scriptures that might have to do with that reality. The Word of God is so seated and so rooted in your person that it's the only mode of thinking you have. All believers are given that command. And I believe believers of every language should have that privilege. And many of them don't have that privilege. They might have heard the gospel. They don't have a copy of the scriptures where, where they can allow the word of Christ to dwell in them richly. And they deserve that privilege. So that's the first goal. Because we want the word of God to dwell plentifully and richly in every believer. The second objective... That they may worship Him in an acceptable manner. Now what does that have to do with the translation of the Scriptures? When John 4.24, Jesus says, God is Spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in Spirit and in truth. Now how can we worship in truth if we don't know truth? And how can we know truth if we can't read truth? How can we know what God has commanded with regard to worship if we can't read what He's written? Again, all believers have a right to the Scriptures for that purpose. God, who deserves the true and spiritual worship from all of His people, deserves the labor of translation so that every language under heaven will sing His praises. He deserves that. It is not right that we have this holy and glorious God and yet there are still languages that are not singing His praises. He deserves it. And so every language should have that, uh, that privilege of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And again, that's how we think of translation efforts. When we think of people who spend their lives translating the Scriptures, we say God is worthy. There is a language that is not yet singing His praises. He's worthy of that language. He deserves it. There are tongues that can't worship in spirit and in truth. He deserves those tongues to sing His praises. So we think the Word should dwell plentifully in all. We believe that all of His people should worship Him in spirit and in truth in an acceptable manner. And thirdly, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, we may have hope. This comes from Romans 14 or 15 and verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And that word encouragement, paraclesis, or klesis, you can hear that word, paraclete, the comforter, the, the Holy Spirit, the idea of that encouragement, that word encouragement is comfort. The word comes alongside of you and encourages you and walks you through. As believers, we get great hope and comfort from reading of God's past faithfulness, His present nearness, and His future graces in the Scriptures. And we believe all of God's people should have the opportunity to be comforted in that way. And again, there are many... Peoples amongst whom there are believers and they don't have a copy of the Scriptures. All they can hear is might be the word of mouth testimonies of, of uh, missionaries or teachers and this or that, which is good. But we, we believe they deserve the Scriptures in their language that they might read for themselves and be comforted by the Spirit through the Scriptures. 
that the word of God may dwell plentifully in all, that all may worship Him in an acceptable manner, and that all of God's people should receive the comfort of the Scriptures and the hope that comes from the Scriptures. So, because God deserves it, and we owe it to Him, that which God originally and immediately inspired to be written should be faithfully and carefully translated into the common language of every ethnic group on earth that they too might know Him, worship Him, and be comforted by Him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we have a great task. And we pray that You would allow us as a church to participate in this work in some form or fashion. Even if it's only through prayer, Lord, prompt our hearts to pray. Oh Lord, we are answerable to so much. We will be held accountable for so much. Because not only do we have the Scriptures in the King James English, but we have them in modern English. And we have commentaries. Every commentary that we could want in English. And we have all of the writings and the sermons and and all of these things that you've laid at our doorstep in our language. We are such a blessed people. Lord, forgive us for taking advantage of these things. Oh Lord, may we be found good stewards of what you've given to us. We know your word says that to those to whom much is given, much will be required. Oh Lord, may we tremble at that thought. May we rise to the occasion and be laborers. May we work for your kingdom. That you may be praised. Oh Lord, you do deserve the worship of every tongue and every language under heaven. It's not fair. It is not just that there would be a language that is not being used to proclaim your glory. That's not right. God, you deserve it. You deserve all of our praise. Lord, we know that the rocks will cry out if we don't. The rocks worship and the stars worship. Human beings should be worshiping. Lord, impress these things upon our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.